This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. We're going to open each hour of this broadcast this year by going for a walk. Neil King Jr., longtime correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, decided to go for a stroll of sorts, if you can call walking from our nation's capital in Washington to our first nation's capital, New York City, anything like a stroll. Along the way, he met Americans of all beliefs and walked the path once trod by American patriots as they founded this nation. And he tells of his travels in the book American Ramble, and we'll open each hour with a part of that journey. Neil, good to have you with us. How are you? Uh, great. Fantastic to be here. Good. And that is more than just a passing nice social thing to ask, how are you? Because how you are is in a way what led up to you doing this walk. There was a real question about whether this would be something you could do at all. So set the scene for that. Yeah, I had had a diagnosis um, a few years earlier of cancer diagnosis. It wasn't a very optimistic one. Um, you know, my odds of being around four or five years later were pretty low. And when I then found myself around four years later, um, I'd had this idea in my head for a long time about walking to New York, kind of a preposterous notion, but it had stuck there. And I said, dang, I should do it. And um, it was kind of a seize the moment thing. And uh, in a lot of ways, the diagnosis itself had magnified my own sense of um, wonder and my desire to get out and see what I could find. There is a thing about walking as opposed to driving, not just that you see more and not just that you, as we will hear, run into more people, have more conversations, but there is something more alive about walking, taking each step, being cognizant of what's around you than, you know, taking a drive from one exit to the next. Yeah, the difference uh, cannot be overstated. It's really quite profound. You know, the more you do it over to days and days, the difference becomes um, even more intense. And, you know, when you arrive in a place, you know, a place of some importance historically or otherwise, you've arrived in a profoundly different way than you would have by car. You're, you are almost literally in a different place because of your having crossed all that countryside and knowing the context that that site is set in. What do you hope to learn from this trip? Or, or did you have any preset notions about what you might learn? You know, I really did want to go out across what I called a founding swath of the country between Washington and New York, where so much of our early history happened, all the way up to now history, actually, and just go look at it in a very close, focused, attentive fashion over what basically became a month. So you start out from your home in Washington, D.C., probably walking by places that you had driven quickly by many times. Did you start to see things differently because you knew you were going on this walk, or did that take a while to set in? You know, it was really a different experience from the minute I walked out my door and the minute I um, latched the, the gate behind me. There was a kind of a hyper-awareness from the very beginning when I walked out the door and made the first couple of blocks. And, you know, there's a funny tradition in our neighborhood that every morning at eight o'clock, 
the Marine barracks headquarters of the Marine barracks, which are like five blocks from my house, break out in a pre-recorded version of the Star Spangled Banner. And that was not planned, but a block from my house as I'm walking, just so happens I walked out my door just before eight, there comes the Star Spangled Banner. And it just felt nice and fitting that that would be the way it would start. How'd you choose the route? Because if you had just gone up, say, well, obviously you're not going to walk by the interstate, but if you go up old US-1 or something, you'd see some things, but you'd mainly see fast food, big box stores, things like that. So what kind of planning went into the route? You know, I put a lot of planning in and I thought about a lot of the alternatives and then I settled on the route that basically took me due north across the um, Mason-Dixon line and into Pennsylvania and then across the Susquehanna into Lancaster County. And I did that because I really wanted to maximize the places that were of importance to me and to us and to, to really be able to see as many places that were of importance to the Civil War, to a big swath of the country and crossing the Mason-Dixon line, which, of course, is the big line between the enslaved and free parts of the country up until the Civil War. I wanted to go to Valley Forge. I wanted to drop into Philadelphia. It was mainly based on which places had a kind of magnetic force over me in terms of drawing me to them for reasons that I had found out a person was there had lived there, was buried there, that there were stories to tell, basically. Right out of the box, as you leave, you go by the Statue of Freedom, one of the less talked about things in Washington, D.C., and find a very interesting background in who the uh, person was who approved the design of the statue. Yeah, you know, the Statue of Freedom, which is on top of the Capitol Dome, that's a, basically a female form with um, what looks like a feather, almost a sort of like head dress on um that and that head itself was put on um in a very big ceremonial way in early december of 1862 um, during the early stages of the civil war which i've always taken as somebody who lives within sight of that building and have for almost 25 years as being this great symbol of of the continuance that lincoln pushed for you know even during that horrible war continuing to finish the Capitol. And, you know, the, the backstory that you're mentioning was that Jefferson Davis, who at that point was the president of the Confederacy, um, had actually been the one who had, had approved the, the statue um, during his time in government, obviously not in the Confederate government. And, um, you know, he had a squabble about what the nature of the, of, of the cap should be on top of the Statue of Freedom. And, and um, you know, it was just one of these ironies of our past, which I spent a lot of time contemplating the whole way there of just these layers of, um, of things that are often forgot or overlooked that are just the complex you know, intertwined threads of our own story that make it so interesting and so hard to, to, to fully understand. Yeah, what, what Jefferson objected to was that cap, as you pointed out, which was, as he wrote, a traditional symbol of freedom derived from freed Roman slaves that became popular during both the American and French revolutions. And Davis wrote the history of that cap, quoting, renders it inappropriate to a people who were born free and should not be enslaved. And considering that he led a war to continue slavery, the irony, as you say there, is is strong. And so begins this trip with this thing that's within view of your home as you start to make your way north. You meet a couple on your walk there, uh, which leads you to a meeting later on. It says something about the connectedness in a way of America that you, you don't you know, you don't run into again if you're just driving through. You know, that was such a fantastic thing. That was only the second morning of the walk. And I realized that I was like, wow, when you go out walking, you have these experiences that are parable-like in their um, sort of vividness and this meaning that they hold. And I had met this couple. I told them where I was going. They brightened and were surprised because I was going 
near an area where they had lived uh, long before with a family there, but they had lost touch with them. And they were Mennonite stock, as was the family that they were talking about. And they told me about them and how they hadn't seen them for years and they weren't sure if they were still alive. And I said, well, wait a minute, I'm going to be there in a week or so. Why don't I look them up, tell them that you're well and find out how they are? And uh, they were just astonished that I would do that. They gave me their names, the Hoovers. They lived in this place called Crooked Lane near Ephrata, Pennsylvania. And eight days later, I arrived at their farm. Of course, the Hoovers were equally astonished that I'd just shown up there bringing good tidings from the herders. And um, the thing that was so great about that whole uh, experience was that I, you know, I'd left my house as basically a pilgrim of sorts on this on this long walk to New York City. And then on the second day, I meet these people and they kind of turn me into a messenger, essentially. And um, that experience was great. I went back actually after the walk. So that was five or six weeks later by car. And I kind of completed the loop by telling the herders that the Hoovers were fine and telling them about the experience. So, you know, I did become a messenger all around. When one walks, especially in areas where people don't normally walk, one gets different reactions from people. Uh, sometimes you get, you know, people waving, saying hello. Sometimes you get people who are worried that they're, they're going to ignore their no trespassing signs. You needed water early on. Again, you weren't walking the main road, so it wasn't like you could always just, you know, walk into a grocery store and and buy some some water. And you got real mixed reactions to that. Yeah, that was actually the same day as the other one. And it became another parable. I called the parable of the empty water bottle, where I met this young man outside of his very large new house in this huge new ritzy suburb outside of uh, Baltimore. And I said to him, uh, do you know where I can get some water? And I held up my water bottle. And he put a lot of thought into it until he described how I could walk about two miles back the way I'd come and found a convenience store. And we got into a very long conversation about um, the whole nature of hospitality. And I told him a story about another man who's basically walking around the world, an American, and how he had been put up spontaneously and all of these houses in the country of Georgia over nearly two months. And and um, and yet the kid who found the um, conversation interesting, and we kind of went back and forth a bit about the nature of, um, you know, the American public, it never dawned on him or kind of crossed his mind that he could just take my water bottle and fill it in his own house. We're going to keep up with Neil King Jr.'s trip through America and the things he saw that reminds us of how this country began at the beginning of each hour here on the Independence Day special on CBS News Radio. Here's more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. We are proud of the people who founded this country, proud of their intellect, their vision, and spirit, especially for their times when much of what we take for granted was considered pretty radical. Speaking of which, the man who was considered the most radical, indeed planting the idea of independence into the minds of many founding fathers who just wanted a more amicable relationship with England, is a name unknown to many Americans, or a name just vaguely recalled. I could find just three schools named for him and the few statues dedicated to him. One of them is in Great Britain, a country he advocated a revolution against. And when I ask people who wrote These Are the Times That Try Men's Souls, I usually get as an answer, Charles Dickens. So for Independence Day, let's look to the man who many think really pushed for that independence, Thomas Paine, our first radical and our first best-selling author and a great book about Paine's ideas and advocacy is Thomas Paine and the Promise of America by Harvey J.K. Harvey, it's good to have you with us. How are you? Thank you. Thank you very much. What happened to Tom Paine? 
of all the figures of the revolution, as important as he was, he is someone who isn't taught about in many schools. One of the reasons a lot of people, young and old, just kind of know the name, but don't really know what he contributed to the revolution is that he's left out of the books. Okay, well, well, let's remember, as you said, that Thomas Paine really is the first visionary for American independence. And by the way, in that pamphlet in which he proposes an, a, a, an independent America, he also lays out the prospect of a democratic republic, which shocked a lot of people, even some of the patriots themselves. They weren't so sure about this thing called democracy. But one of the things that's, that, that resulted was that Paine, because of that pamphlet, Common Sense, later pamphlets, which also extended to his activity as a participant in the French Revolution and his, and his writings that influenced the British labor movement and the struggle for democracy in England, is the fact that people feared his pen. It was a radical pen, and they feared it for many years. Also, he, was, he became a deist, a militant deist, which, which basically held that, that God had created the universe but in fact that God's creation was surely perfect and therefore one didn't, one didn't have to imagine God constantly interfering in, in the universe. But the key thing was is that he rejected the Bible. And as a consequence, you, as I used to tell, as I always told my students, the powerful, the propertied, and the pious all made, made it their cause basically to suppress his memory for decades, but it was never forgotten, never forgotten. In every generation, whatever the movement to enhance American democracy was, whether it had to do with women's suffrage, whether it had to do with ending slavery, whether it had to do with the progressives in the early 20th century, whatever it was, right through to Martin Luther King Jr., who embraced Paine's famous line, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. Every major movement to enhance American democracy reached back and made Thomas Paine their hero, their champion. I want to come back later to that particular quote, but let's talk a little bit about his background, introduce people who don't know about Paine to Thomas Paine. So many of our founding fathers were well-to-do farmers or merchants and who were well-known in the colonies for various things. Paine comes here when he's 37, which is in those days quite a bit along in life. What was his background before he came to America? He came from a very humble family in England. His father was a staymaker, which in our terms would be a corset maker, in fact. This, he was born in 1737. It's a very humble family. His father was a Quaker. His mother was a member of the Church of England, which made it a very, very unusual marriage. And they could only afford to keep him in school for so many years. And they pulled him out of school because they ran out of money at the age of 13. And he was made an apprentice to his father to learn the craft of stay making. But at a certain point in his late teens, he decided he'd had enough of stay making. It was not, it, was, it didn't pay well, number one. It was a very difficult and rather, to, in his mind, rather boring and tedious labor. Well, we should explain what stay making is to people. It's not a phrase that we use anymore. Basically, he was a kind of tailor. Yeah, right. And this was the w making women's corsets with a whalebone or other, you know, means to hold in the women's waistline. And um, but anyhow, he ran at the around the age of nineteen. He ran away and w went to the coast looking for adventure, probably hoping to make some money and and maybe in a little patriotic spirit for England. And he signed on to a privateer, and a privateer was essentially licensed piracy, where the English crown. This was true of all the 
crown uh, governments of Europe. They would license ship captains and their ships to go out and prey, attack enemy vessels. And the deal was that they could keep basically the, uh, the, the capture with the idea that they would have re- you know, removed it from the sea and they would then divide up the, uh, the bounty and among the crew. So it was a piracy basically, but licensed by the English crown. And Payne did that for a year. And he was a very valuable member of the crew because having been a stay maker, he was excellent at repairing the sails of the ships. Also, he proved himself to be more than capable of fighting when they would have to board enemy ships or enemy vessels. And so for a year he did that. And he, you know, but at a certain point, he probably realized that life between the devil and the deep blue sea well, was not exactly, <laughs> not exactly promising for the future. So he left with money in his pocket and went to London, which at that point was the biggest city in the world and set himself to learning about the world. In fact, um, you know, you had these artisans, cafes and taverns, and he would literally go each evening. They organized lectures on everything from astronomy to, to, ge- to geometry. And he became, if you like, a self-educated uh, young working class man. Although at a certain point, his money ran out and he too had to be actually take up the task of stay making, which he did for a while. He, he married a young woman who unfortunately died in childbirth and, and, the, the, the money he was making was so poor that basically he decided he would do what he and his wife had talked about doing, study up and take the exam to be, become an excise officer, which was basically a customs officer. And he got a job with the, with the British government patrolling the coast and inspecting cargo. It was a very, very difficult kind of work to do. Uh, at one point, he was even accused of having cheated by not actually properly stamping the inspected goods. He was fired and laid off for a, f- a couple of years, during which time he did everything from tutor the children of the of the rich to uh, preaching at on Sundays at Methodist gatherings uh, at, at, for the sake of getting meals uh, provided. So, and he had a very, very difficult, uh, you know, we'll call it youth and young adulthood. And there was a really amazing thing that happened. Benjamin Franklin spent a lot of time in London, and he was probably the most famous figure in the Atlantic world at that time. And Payne had the good fortune of meeting Franklin. And I'll cut short the the fuller story of Payne's life still in England. But while there meeting Franklin, Franklin encouraged him. I should say that at a certain point, uh, Payne was restored to the excise commission. He became an officer again. And he became a community figure in south, south of England in a town called Lewis. And then the excise officers sent him to London to, pr- to represent them in trying to secure higher pay for excise workers, which, by the way, was an illegal activity that was considered kind of like labor unionism. And as a consequence, he was fired again. But it was Franklin, whom he had already met, who said, you know what, maybe you should go to America. Now, Franklin was already involved in recruiting people to the American rebellion that was already underway because we're talking now the 1770s. And I don't know if Franklin saw Payne as a possible recruit to the rebellion, but he definitely saw talent in Payne and he gave him a letter of introduction. So in September of 1774, Payne said sailed for Philadelphia. He got very sick on board ship and he might well have died en route. And when they, they arrived in Philadelphia in November, they had to carry him off of the boat well, after a few weeks of recovery, he set out to discover Philadelphia, which at that time, by the way, had a population of about 30,000, and it was considered the capital of the North American colonies. 
Well, Payne had this letter of introduction. And as he would go around town, it, I'm sure he showed people that he had a letter of introduction. And in a bookstore, he got into a conversation with the printer and publisher of, of books and pamphlets who said to him, you know, I think I might have a job for you. And he, overnight, Payne went from being basically a guy with a pretty checkered career in the past. He's only 37, soon to be 38, that January, in fact. And what happens? This man offers him the editorship of a new magazine that he's starting up called the Pennsylvania Magazine. So all of a sudden, America has given Payne a new career. And to put it in, in the shortest terms, in the briefest terms, Payne absolutely fell in love with America. He almost thought he had arrived in paradise. It was a place of opportunity. There was little poverty compared to what he, what he knew all too well existed and, and suffered at times in England. There was only one thing that did upset him in spite of how much he loved America. And that was he could not believe that this people that were in rebellion and I'll explain the rebellion in a second, and using the term liberty over and over again could allow for slavery in the colonies. It just shocked him. And his very first article of a political sort in the magazine he was editing was a call for the abolition of slavery. But I should say, people didn't sign the articles in those days, and he didn't sign that article, but it it became the case that people discovered who it was, and, and he got visits from important figures of the Continental Congress. We have more with Harvey Kay about one of the most important and yet neglected founding fathers coming up on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. And We've got more of a conversation with Harvey Kay about Tom Paine and how much he meant to the American Revolution. Our most radical founding father has been taken up by more conservatives than liberals. Liberals are more in tune with Paine's ideas, but they seem cautious about actually quoting him. What do you think that's about? Well, by the way, not to, I'm sorry to have to correct you, but he did actually use Thomas Paine's name, Ronald Reagan. It was Barry Goldwater. It was Barry Goldwater back in 1964 who quoted Thomas Paine, but did not use his name. That's the interesting thing. But okay, Ronald Reagan, of course, starts out back in the 30s and 40s as an FDR Democrat, and he remembers when FDR quoted Thomas Paine. Next, he too loved popular history, Ronald Reagan. And I have little doubt that he read Howard Fast's novel of 1943, Citizen Tom Paine. I actually interviewed some major, major conservative figures to try to figure out where Ronald Reagan might have gotten Thomas Paine's words. They could never fully answer the question. I've come to the conclusion it's because of the earlier liberal days of Ronald Reagan's career. But he then rediscovers Paine's words in the 1970s. And yeah, he shocked people. George Will, the, the leading conservative columnist of that of the late 70s, well, still in many ways is, he actually was shocked that Ronald Reagan was quoting Thomas Paine, the American radical, instead of Edmund Burke, the British conservative, which is what conservatives were supposed to do. Um, so yeah, and as a consequence, conservatives who for 200 years had done everything to avoid ever mentioning Paine other than to lambaste his memory, they start embracing Thomas Paine. Though I can tell you, none of them have used Thomas Paine's words in such a radical fashion. They generally refer to other words of Paine. It's Reagan. This is the most ironic thing going. Reagan, who launches this new conservatism, is the fellow who quotes Thomas Paine's 
we have it in our power to begin the world over again. I mean, it, 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 it was amazing. And I can tell you that it may well be one of the things that, as a spirited kind of thing, ends up costing liberals and progressives, if you like, any kind of say in how to interpret American history. They, they, they pulled away from that American radical tradition that had embraced pain and avoided it, whereas Reagan just literally <laughs> took it on. After the revolution, when we don't have time to get into the rest of Payne's life, but it is fascinating. He, the, the British wanted him arrested as a revolutionary. It, 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 it also in part because he's critiquing Burke. Uh, he fled to France, even though he didn't speak a word of French. He gets elected to the French National Convention. Uh, that gets him arrested, only released at the behest. As he said, Washington didn't speak for him. It's uh, James Monroe who finally gets him out. He's buried. He comes back to the United States. He's buried. His body is taken up by somebody who, who wants a nicer burial place for him in Europe. And eventually his bones are even lost. It's just a, a strange kind of, he kind of disappears back into this kind of hidey hole of, of history where scholars write tons of books upon him, but except for Howard Fast's book, and I think your book, which I think everybody, you know, would read as a, as a easy to read and, and get popular book, he kind of disappears from the American imagination in many ways, except to somebody occasionally quoted, often out of context. Why is that? Was he too revolutionary for people? Was it his attacks on religion, despite the fact that he believed devoutly in God? Uh, what happens to Thomas Paine? Okay, here again. Now, this is the whole point of why I wrote the book. What I discovered was that Paine was not forgotten. He was forgotten at elite levels, okay? The elite of culture, politics, religion, you know, at that level, yes, he was forgotten. But I have to repeat, in every single generation, whether we were talking about free thinkers, abolitionists, women suffragists, labor unionists, even, you know, socialists, populists, progressives, I come all the way through the 20th century, basically, Paine was never forgotten. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and this is the point of my book, Thomas Paine, The Promise of America, that though he may not yet have the monument in Washington, D.C., he really has a monument in Americans' hearts and minds, even when they don't realize it. And last but not least, I want to point out that last year, finally, the American Congress approved a resolution to create a monument to Thomas Paine. It isn't on the mall, but somewhere in D.C., and funds are being raised even as we speak. Well, there it goes, and probably a good place for us to end, but a good place for you all to pick up the book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, by Harvey J.K. Harvey, thank you so much for, for being with us. It's probably as much as many Americans have ever heard about uh, Thomas Paine, and I'm glad we spent the time. <laughs> thank you so much, really. Back in a bit with more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. We're back with much more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. 
Many of you, whether you've listened to our past July 4th broadcast or caught the story as a Jeopardy answer, know that the Declaration of Independence was actually passed on July 2nd, not the 4th, the 4th being the day that the fully edited version came out. John Adams thought we'd always be celebrating the 2nd of July with fireworks. That did not work out. But there may be a reason for people to celebrate the 2nd of July anyway, if in this case, it would have been a year later, 1777. It has to do with the state of Vermont and slavery. And here to explain that is Mary Elliott, a museum specialist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Hi, Mary. Hi, Gil. It's nice to speak with you. Mary, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about independence is it wasn't independence for everybody. And I was just talking about what happened in Vermont, and I should fill people in on that. It was July 2nd, 1777, that always independent Vermont became the first state to ban slavery, not just ban it, but guarantee voting rights for African Americans, which was pretty much unknown at the time. But like everything else, when we talk about this, it wasn't everything it seemed to be. You could not hold adults as slaves in Vermont, but you could hold children. And whatever we look at back then, even when it seems like good news, it wasn't totally what it seemed to be. I'm so glad that you brought up this topic because so often we talk about slavery and freedom and the lens is pointed in the direction of the South in terms of discussing slavery. But when you discuss freedom and think of the North, the North isn't so much divorced from the limits of freedom for African-Americans. What Vermont did on July 2nd, 1777 is very important because it became the first colony to outright ban slavery. But again, it came with its limits. There were some um, opportunities to manifest one's freedom, but like in many of the Northern colonies, the limits of gradual emancipation included where um, People were guaranteed their freedom after certain years of apprenticeship, after they reach a certain age. Um, and then you were limited in your movement, your ability to own property and many different things. So that's very important to note that this wasn't a perfect notion of freedom. And that kind of ties in with um, July 4th celebrations of 1776 and looking at how you have this liberated nation that was still maintaining slavery. It's always this paradox that's lingering. Um, and what does freedom really mean? How is freedom really defined at that moment? And what does it mean by the time we get to 1865? And quite interestingly, June 19th, 1865, a new meaning of freedom, a more defined version of freedom that's applicable to all. Yeah. And let's let's talk about that, because people hear about Juneteenth. They you know, they don't, they're not exactly sure what happened. June 19th, 1865 it has to do with Major General Gordon Granger who, and General Order number three. And and tell us about that, because some people think it's just, you know, like a made up holiday or something. But it's an important date in American history. Thank you for that question. Um, Juneteenth is a very important date and it's become even more significant in the past few years, even though people have been commemorating, celebrating Juneteenth for generations as early as when the event occurred in June 19, June 19, 1865. And that date marks the occasion that Union Army General Gordon Granger entered into Galveston, Texas, accompanied by Union Army um, troops, including members of the US Colored Troops. And the announcement was made that the enslaved African-Americans in Texas were now free, keeping in mind that freedom had already come to them as early as January 1st, 1863, with the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation. So we talk about this 
meaning of freedom and an imperfect freedom? Well, the fact is the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to African-Americans who were enslaved in rebelling states, those states that had seceded from the Union. And within those seceding documents, they mentioned slavery several times. And so it took a war, the Civil War, to enforce that Emancipation Proclamation, Texas being the farthest rebelling state, farthest west. And they continued that fight in Texas until, of course, um, the Union Army entered into the state and was able to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. But here's what's important. The general order that General Granger issued on June 19th, he had the authority to write this general order, and it states and pay attention to the words because it really does speak to this imperfect freedom. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly in their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. So that moment of June 19th, which is referred to today as Juneteenth, is important because freedom came to those in the rebelling states but not to all enslaved people. It took the 13th Amendment to do that. But what's also important to note is in this passage, the limits of that freedom. Now you're expected to serve as a, a hired labor, and the person who enslaved you is considered an employer? Can you imagine the limits of bargaining power for that hired labor? That's what we see what happens when you see those sharecropper contracts having to be defined and enforced through the Freedmen's Bureau. And the notion that you have to remain quietly in your present home, which is a slave cabin. And the fact that your idleness the assumption that you will be idle is not supported. This is a general order that was issued by a Union Army general. It gives you a sense of what society, how society viewed Black people, whether in the North or the South, whether in the Confederacy or the Union Army. Yeah, it was a very limited freedom. You know, and even going back to what we started talking about, which was the Vermont thing where it saved slavery is over very similar to what happened with the statement from Granger on June 19th, 1865, is that, uh, first of all, a lot of wealthy landowners in New England uh, kept slaves anyhow, because if you had money, you could pretty much buy off anybody. But a lot of them would just say, okay, they're actually servants now. Oh, can they quit? No. Uh, can you shoot them if they run off? Yes. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really freedom. It was it was like kind of just changing the job title. Exactly. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is there were um, there were people in the north, in Rhode Island, Massachusetts and other areas, Maine, who were engaged in shipbuilding and ongoing involvement in the slave trade, even after the international slave trade was made illegal. So there was still an investment in the commodification of African-Americans. There was still an investment in bondage. And there was still this sense of African-Americans as being inferior. And that control, that limit of freedom played out in places like, while we talk about Vermont and Connecticut and Rhode Island in places like Ohio, 
the same thing where Ohio was seen as this state that guaranteed freedom for people who were fleeing slavery, fugitive, enslaved, freedom seekers. Ohio is a site where there were three race riots before the end of the Civil War. And so there is still this notion of textile mills, banks, and others invested in slavery, but also this sense of socially, Black people know your place. Know your place. You can be free, but know your place in society. We'll have more with Mary Elliott on how African-Americans celebrate or not the 4th of July coming up here on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been talking with Mary Elliott from the Museum of African-American Culture and History about Independence Day and African-Americans. So here we are now. We have all this history behind us. And we have the Declaration of Independence, which we celebrate on the 4th of July. And the second paragraph begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then we deal with the fact that all men were not considered to be created equal, and all of them were not guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as certain unalienable rights. And this went on for a long time to the Civil War and then, of course, after the Civil War. So how does the African-American community celebrate or, or not? How do they just view the 4th of July? You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned about the um, the section of the the language regarding all men are created equal. And then again, we mentioned in general order number three, the language that says this involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property. Um, And then the fact that it took the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, and then the Reconstruction Amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments, including the 13th Amendment ending slavery with the exception of if you commit a crime, 14th Amendment citizenship, due process, equal protection of the law, and 15th Amendment, the right to vote and hold office. Um, And African-Americans have a complex relationship with this celebration and commemoration of the 4th of July. I'll take myself as an example in that I recognize both holidays, the 4th of July and Juneteenth. And in Frederick Douglass's well-known speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July?, He speaks about the um, great men who um, created this Declaration of Independence and, and, you know, the um, mind, the mindfulness of being being able to create this important historic document, but also taking to task those same men who were maintaining slavery at the time and the paradox of it. We help bring this nation into being. And so we have every right to stake a claim to the significance of this nation. Was independence at that time perfect? Was liberty perfect? No, because there were still people held in bondage. But the two holidays, Juneteenth and 4th of July, are very important moments for all of us to pause and reflect on the meaning of freedom in this nation and to not just do it for the sake of thinking about history, but to do it for the sake of thinking about how are we continuing to define and apply freedom and equality and justice to all? Have we really reached the ideals of what we say we are as a nation. 
And possibly wrapping up just as a reminder that the first American to die in the Revolutionary War, and that was at the Boston Massacre, was a black man, Crispus Attucks. So there's a long history here. And Mary Elliott knows this as a museum specialist at a good place to go to learn, Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Mary, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. You're listening to the Independence Day Special from CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.